0: We're going to pick up this evening in First Kings, Chapter Five. Our chapters this evening. Uh, are focused on Solomon's building of the temple. You may remember that David's desire was to build a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. In fact, interestingly enough, what had stirred his heart to do so was that he had completed his own palace uh, and was living in it and felt the incongruence of uh, the ark which was still existing um without any place to house it in Jerusalem. Uh, and it's then when God comes and says, No, actually, David, I'm going to build you a house, and one of your sons will reign continuously, and I will treat them uh, like one of my sons. And then he adds, And it will be your son who builds a place for my name. And so now that Solomon is established on the throne, And equipped by God to rule the people with God-given wisdom, we pick up in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God, because of the warfare which which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. And so notice here, Solomon reaches out to a friend of the family, Hiram, the king of Tyre, uh, Tyre. and the reason why Hiram is significant is because of the natural resources in the land of Tyre, specifically the cedars of Lebanon, uh, which are so beautiful that they are constantly used in scripture uh, as a picture of majesty and beauty. And so as you can expect, uh, the citizens of Tyre are also expert woodworkers, uh, as well as uh, experts in stone quarrying. And so here, knowing that he has a good relationship in place, uh, and probably knowing that David would have enlisted uh, the king of Tyre, Hiram, for help, Solomon reaches out and says, now is the time And so he continues here in verse six. Now, therefore, command that the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set, for you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over his great people. And So Hiram is pleased with this plan, excited about the prospects, and it's worth pointing out that we know from history that Hiram himself was a significant builder, and during the reign of Solomon, also built his own temple in his own capital, and so this was the type of thing that made sense to him. Verse 8, and Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I've heard the message that you've sent to me. I'm ready to do all that you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servant shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by the sea to the place you direct. And I'll have them broken up there, and you shall receive it. And you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. And so he lays out the whole process here. And notice, um, just like the old films you've seen of the Northwest lumber trade, uh, they would be taken to a river, they would be bound together like they were a raft, and floated down the river to closer to Jerusalem, and there carried on foot in smaller broken down pieces to build the temple. And what he suggests in the form of payment is effectively taking care of his royal household, uh, feeding uh, the royal household. And so he says here, um, verse 10, so Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired, while Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. Okay, and so this is a significant amount of wheat and oil that he is providing, and it's an annual uh, payment for the time, resources, uh, and work of Hiram's people. Verse 12, the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. And so beyond this whole arrangement, they also uh, take specific acts to be Uh, partners against any adversaries that might arise. Now we get into the labor that it took for the building project here, and it's important that you recognize uh, two different groups in these verses that follow. Verse 13, Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. In other words, these 30,000 men on rotation uh, would go to Lebanon four months of the year, a month on and then two months off. uh, And this is how he uh, works this project. On top of that, verse uh, 14 continues, Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hill country, besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. This second group, the 150,000 that we find here, these would have been uh, foreign, non-Israelite Uh, servants who are working full-time continuously. In fact, most of these relationships begin all the way back in the book of Joshua. For example, the Gibeonites, right? Who, because they form a treaty with Israel... Uh, but they do it through deception. They become the water bearers of Israel, the servants of Israel. And so uh, this is a large force. Um, We're we're scraping up uh, just under 200,000 people involved in this building project. Now, as we mentioned last week, um, the heavy taxes that Solomon brings about on the people, as well as the forced labor we find here, seems to be pleasantly received at least in the beginning. But the problem is, uh, this team is going to experience mission creep, okay, and so they're drafted to build the temple, and that's gonna take seven years, a significant period of time. But then they're going to build Solomon's palace for another 13 years, and then clean up a handful of other projects, okay? And so we're talking about a solid generation of labor for what was to be for a single assignment that, let's be honest, all Israel was into, okay? Once again, all of the seeds of the destruction of the rule of Solomon are kind of all subtly already in play. We'll see more of that tonight. Verse 17, at the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. Dressed means that they prepped them at the quarry and shaped them there. Um, Verse 18, so Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gabal did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. Now, after all of the resources have been assembled to build, uh, we get to the building itself in verse one of chapter six. In the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, notice that that date is so significant that the narrator here takes the time to lay it down, and where does he begin his timeline with? He doesn't just say, in the fourth year of Solomon, but he goes all the way back to when Israel was brought out in the Exodus. It's been 480 years total now since that happened. And the reason is because here we're getting to the sum total of God's purposes for Israel. You may remember repeatedly in the Exodus, God says, I will dwell with you. You will be my people. And it also repeatedly, especially during the um, leadership of Joshua, God was saying, I'm going to choose a place for my name right? And so the narrator here sets us up to see the fulfillment of a major trajectory that's been moving through the Old Testament. In fact, when we finish tonight, we really are going to hit the high point of Israel's history. Peace, prosperity, God's presence in the temple, it's all right here. In fact, watch tonight as we read how many times God's fulfillment of his promises is reiterated, okay? Um, So this is when he begins, it's in the fourth year of his reign, Uh, and so it says, he began to build the house of the Lord, and then verse 2, the house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Now if we put that in feet, that's 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. So it's not really that large of a building. It is significantly larger than the tabernacle. But it's still uh, not as large as you might picture the big glorious temple of Solomon. Now it's worth pointing out, although it is bigger than the tabernacle, in its proportions it is exactly the same, okay? As we will see, uh, the Holy of Holies will take up the back third. The Holy Holy of Holies will be equal in all of its dimensions by height, by width, and by length. Uh, and then the two-thirds that makes up the holy place uh, will balance it out, so it's proportionately the same. Interestingly enough, so is the massive temple that Ezekiel envisions, and the rebuilt temple under the rule of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, after the return from Babylon, and even the uh, New Jerusalem, in the book of Revelation, follows similar proportionate standards. Uh, we'll come back to that in a little bit, but let's look at this temple here. Verse 3, the vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And so this is, this is the um, patio area in front of the tabernacle or the temple proper verse 4 he made for the house windows with recessed frames now it's worth pointing out here when it says windows with recessed frames that's our best guess at what this means there's quite a lot of language involved here that is so technical because basically what we're talking about is archaeological architecture that we're not always positive exactly what it means Uh, but windows or some sort of opening is probably the idea here Uh, And then verse 5, he also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both nave and inner sanctuary, and he made side chambers all around. This is one of the things that's different about Solomon's temple, and so if you can envision uh, the tabernacle, which is basically two rooms and then a large courtyard, okay, uh, this also has a large courtyard and two rooms being the holy place and the holy of holies. But running down both sides is a bunch of smaller rooms used for storage and, uh, and probably for sleeping the priests who are on uh, on deck serving the people for that particular time of year, uh, running down both sides. In fact, uh, we will find that those side chambers are most likely three stories high, okay, and so quite a lot of uh, auxiliary space in the temple. Verse 6, the lowest story was five cubits broad, and the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third one was seven cubits broad. Now, that's actually really surprising, because what does it say? Every higher story was a little bit wider, and so if you would have seen these sidewalls from outside the temple, they probably would have moved out a little bit, or some suggest that that space difference is filled mostly with ladder, Uh, And so that would be how you get from one floor to another. Um, But the widest ones are at the top. And then it explains, for around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. Okay, and so it's staggered and each level reaches out a little bit further. And so just like the porch on the second story of your house, it has standalone beams supporting each floor. Verse seven, when the house was built, it was uh, with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. And so the idea here is that every stone is shaped to fit at the quarry and then it's assembled like a puzzle and without tools, at least tools of hammers and chisels uh, at the site. And so um, it's without the loud construction noise. Most likely here, the idea is that they are not just building any given building. I will tell you, the building that's going up right next door here, they do not care about the noise, Uh, and it is constant, but the concern here seems to point to the significance that this is already the Temple Mount. It's already the perspective place for the Temple, and so they go about things differently verse 8, the entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house and one went up the stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third. So he built the house and finished it and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house five cubits high and it was joined to the house with the timbers of cedar. Now, verse 11, the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you were building. If you walk in my statutes, and obey my rules, and keep all my commandments, and walk in them. Then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and will not forsake my people Israel. And so what we have here is both a promise and a clarification. Remember, in all of the people groups around Israel, they also would have had temples. They also would have had places of worship. Uh, However, most of those surrounding religions saw those places as not a metaphorical house, but a literal house for their gods, and saw the sacrifices not as something that atoned for sin, but as a gift of food to the gods, okay? And so God, in, uh, in speaking here, maintains the distinction that, uh, that there's a difference between this uh, and that contraption the Ghostbusters use right? That's the concern here, is the, this house, despite its beauty, uh, despite the fact that it's fulfilling the promises, in no way constrains God or puts, them in, puts him in Israel's debt, okay? And so, we'll see, uh, even in Solomon's dedication of this, he constantly maintains the distinction uh, between this being the place, this is the language that Solomon will use, for God's name, and not his house. And so the warning here is uh, that it will not be the presence of the temple that leads to God's good blessings and fulfilling of the covenant, but their obedience, something that's emphasized over and over again. So verse 14, Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar from the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling. He covered them on the inside with wood. And he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. And he, built, uh, and he built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. So as I mentioned, if you were to come into this building, it's an open space, 60 feet deep, and then a smaller space, 30 by 30 uh, in the back, um, which is where the ark will be housed, the holy Uh, the most holy place, the place where only the priest could go, and then only the holy, uh, uh, on the holy day, the day of atonement, and only the high priest with the blood of a sacrifice. Verse 17, the house, that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long, that's the holy place. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers, all was cedar, no stone was seen. Okay, and so the building internally is a stone structure, but it's been completely covered with wood walls, and all of those are ornamentally carved, specifically with gourds and open flowers. And so it would have been a tremendously beautiful space to be in, full of intricate design. 19, the inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. Notice that, a perfect cube again. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. Okay, and so, so picture this. This is this beautiful, intricately carved holy place. But if you were to step into the Holy of Holies, it's floor-to-ceiling solid gold. Okay. Um, Significantly valuable and beautiful. And then verse 21, Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And so another thing he does here is when he hangs the curtain uh, that separates the holy place from the most holy place, even the chains that hang the curtain are made of solid gold. Verse 22, he overlaid the whole house with gold until the whole house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was 10 cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured 10 cubits. Both cherubim had the same measurement and the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was that of the other cherub. And he put the cherub in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched one wall, and a wing of the other touched the other wall, and their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house, and he overlaid them with gold. So if you were to look in the Holy of Holies, with the ark being centerpiece, there's two large angelic statues made of wood and coated in gold with Uh, Wings that extend out to each wall and then touching with the ark sitting right beneath their overlapping wings. Um, Let's continue on here. Uh, Verse 29, around all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. And so here we see more ornamental carving. Verse 30, the floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. And so it appears here on top of having the curtain that divides the holy place from the most holy place, there's also solid doors here intricately carved out of olive wood. So he also made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood and the two leaves of one door were folding and the two leaves of the other were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the carved work. Now the ornamentation we see here of plants and angels effectively uh, is similar to what we find in the tabernacle. And the best reason... Uh, To think of these being the appropriate ornamentation uh, probably has to do with the Garden of Eden. In fact, a good case can be made uh, that the way the creation account reads effectively, effectively sets earth up as God's temple with the Garden of Eden being the most holy place. Okay, And so the suggestion of the temple and the tabernacle follow follow suit with this design, and the imagery alludes to, you know, the fruitfulness and the abundance of the garden, uh, and even the protection of angels that we find uh, when Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. Um, And so, verse 36, he built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beans. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Zeve. And in the 11th year in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts according to its specifications. He was seven years in building it. Okay, and so although it's a small building, it really is uh, a significant work of architecture and art that takes seven years to build, even with almost 200,000 people starting all the way back in the quarries and in the forest all the way to the assembling at the Temple Mount. Now, one of the things that's helpful to remember when we read our Bibles is that the chapter numbers are added not by our authors, but by much later editors. Okay? They are very helpful to us because they make the Bible very easy for reference. Okay? So, for example, when I say turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 5, we all end up on the same place, okay? What they are not helpful for is interpretation. And that's especially a challenge because many of us, when we read, just like we would any other book, we stop when we come to the end of a chapter. And sometimes that means that we stop not in a natural stopping place where the author would have us, but just a reasonably sized coverage of uh, of verses to make up the chapter this is one of those places and so it's helpful to go back and read 38 and then roll into chapter 7 so we don't miss the significance the author's trying to convey verse 38 of chapter 6 again in the 11th year in the month of bull which is the eighth month the house was finished in all its parts according to all its specifications he was seven years in building it Then notice verse 1 of chapter 7, Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house, okay? And so what do we see here? We see that despite all of the devotion and decor that goes into Solomon's building of the temple, it doesn't even compare to what he builds for himself, okay? Now, there's a question here, and it, it, it involves a couple of different ways of understanding. Either Solomon first built the temple that was seven years, and then built his house, that's another 13 years for a total of 20. Um, That's probably the most natural way to to read this passage, but there are a few things, one of them we'll hit next week, one we can see right here that make us wonder if that's exactly what happened. And so going back again to verse 1, notice it says Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished his entire house, okay? The suggestion may be here that at this point... Before Solomon has dealt with all of the instrumentation of the temple, okay, because there's still going to be some beautiful uh, lavers that are built, Uh, there's still going to be all of the tools that are used in the temple, those don't come yet. It may be that he puts that on hold, and while he has this force working in the forest and working in the quarries, he decides to build his house too, which would delay the temple for 13 years, okay? Uh, It's hard to tell... Uh, what's going on here, some suggest, and and a lot of it has to do with the dedication, but like I said, most of this will draw out next week. Um, But either way, at the very least here, Solomon spends almost twice as much time on his own palace as he does on the temple. Uh, But it may even be that he puts the temple's finishing on hold while he does so, which would be even more concerning. Notice that the author drops it right here, whatever the timeline is, to make that contrast, right? He wants us to notice, comparatively, the two. And so he doesn't wait to finish the story of the temple. He actually interrupts it and says, by the way, just for reference, he spent 13 years on his own house, okay? And then we get a small description of that house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits and its breadth 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. And it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar... Cedar beams on the pillars. It was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 each row. There were window frames in three rows and windows opposite in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames, and the window was opposite the window in three tiers. And so notice this is labeled as the house of the forest, and it's easy to see why. Because he takes all of this quality wood and he builds this solid wood uh, palace. And then, verse 6, he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from floors to rafter. Okay, so this would have been the place uh, where those who felt they weren't getting justice could appeal to the king and he would sit in judgment like we saw him do with the two prostitutes, uh, one of whom had lost a child last week. Verse 8, his own house where he was to dwell in the other court back of the hall was like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter whom he'd taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones, cutting according to measure, sawed with saws back and front, even from the foundation to the coping, and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits. Uh, And so, so there, that's, um, that's about 12 feet and 15 feet uh, perspectively how large these foundation stones were. And above were costly stones cut according to the measurement in cedar. Verse 12, the great court had three courses of cut stone all around and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. Now we go back to the building of the temple and specifically to the bronze and gold work that makes up the furnishings of the temple. Verse 13, King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was a son of the widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And so here is a uh, a half-Jewish descendant whose father, or maybe father-in-law, because it mentions here that his mother was a widow, Uh, his father-in-law may have been from Tyre, but his mother is Jewish. And it says here that he was a worker in bronze and he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to Solomon and did all of his work. And so one of the people of note in this story is a craftsman uh, of great God-given skill. In fact, we saw the same thing with the tabernacle. When the tabernacle was being, uh, being built, God specifically gave, by way of gifting through his spirit, uh, Aholiab and Bezalel the ability to build the beautiful things for the tabernacle and orchestrate all of those things. And we see the same thing here. And it's worth recognizing, again, that God is the giver of all good gifts, and that includes artistic ability. Okay, And so it's interesting that even though, for example, uh, God is aware of the danger of idolatry, of spe- specifically building graven images to worship, uh, that when the temple is built, there are graven images. They're just not to worship, right? There's a lot of decor and beauty. There have been periods of time within the church uh, that anything that is... Uh, attractive or delicate or beautiful is despised as being, uh, irreligious and inappropriate. Okay. Uh, so for example, I remember receiving an incredibly lengthy email, uh, from a man, let's see if I can remember his name. I got one a year for about four years in a row. Um, And when I say lengthy, I'm thinking 35 pages, okay? Uh, And it was a criticism uh, of uh, Calvary Chapel in particular, the movement that we're a part of, because many Calvary chapels personify or logo their churches with a dove, okay? Uh, To me, it looks more like a bat, but it's supposed to be a dove. but, but his great argument was, look, the Bible is clear, no graven images, we shouldn't have any pictures of Jesus or anything else in our churches, just the Bible written in large readable letters. But that's a misunderstanding, and it was so easy to point to his misunderstanding because of this reality right here. As we saw in the tabernacle, also here, this is a beautiful Uh, building that is adorned with many beautiful pieces, some of them significantly similar uh, to idolatrous actions of Israel. So what gets them in trouble while Moses is on the mountain in the book of Exodus? They they create a golden calf to worship, right? But we're going to see in a second here, Hiram builds a bronze laver that sits on 12 bronze calves, okay? And that's not problematic. When Exodus calls us not to have any graven image to worship, the key phrase there is to worship, okay? The implication, what we're to remember, uh, is that there is only one appropriate image of God, and it's us as human beings. And so when we build a graven image, we make the mistake that both the psalmist and Isaiah criticize when he says, your gods, they have a mouth, but they cannot speak. They have ears and they do not hear your prayers. They cannot carry you when you fall down. In fact, you have to pick them up and carry them where you will, right? The criticism there is not, uh, as we sometimes read it, why do you worship pieces of stone? It's, don't you understand that those stone gods perfectly represent your gods? Because they aren't real, so they don't speak, they don't answer prayers. But because we worship the living God, uh, we cannot personify God with... Uh, with these types of things. We cannot limit God's transcendence in these ways. However, God is pro-beauty, and he gives the abilities and skills, and there is no artistic capability, no matter its use, that doesn't come from the gracious hand of God, the creator, okay? Okay. And so Hiram comes on the payroll, and these are the things he does. Verse 15, he cast two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of twelve cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow, and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. He also made two capitals, a cast of bronze to set at the top of the pillars. The height of one of the capitals was five cubits and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were lattices of checker work with wreaths of chain and work for the capitals on top of the pillars, a lattice for one capital and a lattice for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the lattice work to cover the capital that was on top of the pillar and he did the same with the other capital. Now, the capitals were the tops of the pillars in the vestibule, were of lily work, four cubits. And so, if you can picture a lily here, it usually has four reaching out uh, petals. And so, the idea here is that the capital uh, blooms at the top, and then wrapped around it is this lattice work covered in pomegranates. Um, so, verse 18 likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the lattice work to cover the capital that was on top of the pillar. Uh, verse uh, 20, the capitals were on the two pillars, also above the rounded projection, which was beside the latticework. There were 200 pomegranates in rows all around, and so with the other capital. And so right beneath the capital here is two rows of 200 bronze pomegranates. Um, verse 21, he set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jachin, and he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. Now, to the best of our ability, because, uh, because we find words from these word groups, but not these words in specific other places, uh, Boaz most likely means strength, and Jachin means to establish, okay? And so the idea here is a little bit abstract. Okay. Uh, if, if, if I could suggest to you, the, the names of the pillar carry significant meaning when coupled with the idea of the fact that they are pillars. Okay, um, But what they point to is left open to be pondered, to be meditated, like much art is. The idea most likely, especially when you find these words or this word group used in the Psalms, has to do with the fact that God has established Israel, given them strength, and specifically established King David and his line, okay? And it's really a recognition here that, that God is Israel's strength, Okay, verse 22, on top of the pillars was lily work, thus the work of the pillars was finished. So he makes these two pillars, and they sit out in front of uh, the temple, verse 23, then he made the sea of cast metal, it was round, ten cubits from brim to brim, and five cubits high, and a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. And so what this is, is a very large bronze bowl, Okay. Under its brim were gourds for 10 cubits compassing the sea all around, and the gourds were in two rows, cast when it was cast, meaning it's all of one piece, it's part of the shape of the bowl. Verse 25, it stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east the sea was set on them and all their rear parts were inward okay so do you get the idea here this huge bronze bowl is set on the cows all of their rears inward facing they're all facing outwards and the bowl sits on their back okay now this replaces the bronze laver of the tabernacle which was significantly more simple and quite a bit smaller Okay. And so this is primarily about artistic beauty. In fact, it's so large, and as we're going to see, he builds a bunch of smaller lavers for water. We wonder here if this was actually daily used by the priests or was symbolic of their need for cleansing, but just too big for practical use. Okay. Verse 27, he also made 10 stands of bronze. Each stand was four cubits long and four cubits wide and three cubits high. This was the construction of the stands. They had panels and on the panels were set in frames and on the panels that were set in frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. Now here we are starting to see once again something that is somewhat significant, okay? When we get to uh, the throne room in Revelation, we find angels that have multiple faces. And the faces are of a man, of an ox, uh, of a lion, and of a eagle, right? Right. Yes. Uh, And here in the tabernacle, we find a lot of those same symbols here, oxen and lion, uh, the cherubim themselves, which would have been uh, humanoid, angelic. Um, And so here, these smaller bronze boxes, that function as lavers again, are covered with decoration of lion and oxen and wreaths. Verse 30, moreover, each stand had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze at the four corners with supports for the basin. The supports were cast for wreaths at the side of each, okay? And so these are effectively carts on wheels, but all made of bronze. And I would suggest to you, the reason they're on wheels is so you can take them to the water and not the water to them, okay? Because they're Uh, because they're still pretty sizable. Um, Verse 31, it's opening within with a crown that projected upwards one cubit. Its opening was round as a pedestal made it a cubit and a half deep, and its opening there were carvings, and its panels were square, not round. And the four wheels were underneath the panels. The axles of the wheels were of one piece with the stands, and the height of the wheel was a cubit and a half. The wheels were made like chariot wheels, their axles, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast, all bronze. There were four supports at the four corners of each stand, the supports were one piece with the stands, and on top of the stand there was a round band, half a cubit high, and on top of the stand it stays, and its panels were of one piece with it. And on the surface it stays, and on the panel he carved cherubim, lions, and palm trees, according to the space of each, with wreaths all around. After this manner, he made the ten stands. All of them were cast alike of the same measure and of the same form. And so beyond the large bronze sea that sits on the back of these cows, there's ten individual smaller receptacles for water, five on each side, set up in the court before the holy place. Verse 38, he made... 10 basins of bronze. Each basin held 40 baths, and each basin measured four cubits. And there was a basin for each of the 10 stands. And he set the stands five on the south side of the house and five on the north side of the house. And he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins, so Hiram finished all the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of the Lord, the two pillars, the two bowls of the capitals that were on top of the pillars, and the two latticework to cover up the two bowls of the capitals that were on top of the pillars, and four hundred pomegranates for the two lattice work, two rows of pomegranates for each latticework to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the pillars. The ten stands and the ten basins on the stand, and the one sea and the twelve oxen underneath the sea. Now, when we read that, it's clearly a repetition, but why is it there? It reads, doesn't it, like checking an inventory, okay? Most likely, this chapter is formed from the work order, okay? And so, it's recognized here as being fully received, Verse 45, now the pots and shovels and basins, all these vessels in the house of the Lord, which Hiram made for King Solomon, were of burnished bronze. Burnished meaning that they were polished, um, so they shined. In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them. In the clay of the ground between Succoth and Zathron. and Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because there were so many of them, the weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So the total value of everything that Hiram makes is unknown because there was so much of it, it was too much to count. Okay, so, verse 48, Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of presence, the lampstand of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north before the inner sanctuary. And so here we come to all the golden furniture that, that exists inside the tabernacle and it tells us that Solomon had those made as well. Notice here, it's not a single lamp, lampstand, uh, but instead there are... Um, Ten of them, five on each side, because it's a larger room, and this is its primary source of light when the doors aren't open and when the sun isn't coming in. Um, And then, so here, five on the south and five on the north before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, and the tongs of gold, the cups, the snuffers, the basins, dishes for incense and firepans of pure gold, and the sockets of gold for the door of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple. Okay. One last thing I want to point out here, notice that if you were to stand at the gates to Solomon's temple, just like the tabernacle, as you walk forward, the value and the intricacy of what has been done gets aggressively higher, and so we start in bronze, and then we step into this cedar room where we start to see gold, and then there's a solid gold holy of holy place. It was the same thing with the tabernacle, uh, even, even in its most smallest level, like the fastenings for the curtains, which in the outer court uh, were bronze, and then for the holy place, silver, and then gold in the center, okay? And so there's this progression of value, and therefore this focus on the holy of holies. Verse 51, Thus, all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David, his father, had dedicated, the silver, the gold, the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Now, before we get on to the dedication of the temple in the next chapter, um, it's interesting to follow the progression of this idea of God's house or the temple throughout the Bible. And so uh, in the beginning, like I said, it's, it's been suggested uh, because temple layouts are really consistent in the ancient Near East. And their understanding was basically that the temple was a personification of the universe, okay? And so the creation story lays out the same way and we have uh, the Garden of Eden and it's this place where God walks with man in the cool of the days. It's paradise, Right? Um, but by the time we get to the tabernacle, there's a serious problem. And so here we have, we have a tent that's laid out in the same way, but there's no access to the most holy place, right? Only through the day of atonement, only through the blood of an innocent land are the sins of Israel forgiven. And even that act of achieving atonement by blood being put on the mercy seat is only accessible by the high priest on the day of atonement after he sacrificed for himself. Okay, Hebrews unpacks the significance of all these things for what Jesus has done for us and how much greater he is than the high priest of Israel. We see that same pattern playing out not just in the tabernacle but in the temple and even in the temple uh, that Herod rebuilds in the days of Jesus, okay? Uh, what's, What's significant is when we get to the very end of the book of Revelation, We have the new heavens and the new earth and then we have Jerusalem descending out of the sky like a bride adorned for her husband. And what's fascinating is it gives us the measurements for the new Jerusalem and it's not sensical, okay? Because the city is laid out as a cube. It's just as high as it is wide as it is long, okay? And it's very large, okay? Uh, And so instead of trying to envision some sort of, um, you know, a space station that will orbit the earth, as some commentators have actually done. I would suggest to you the significance of that size, however it's going to look and function in real life, is to recall the Holy of Holies. But what do we find out in the New Jerusalem? That it's the place where God dwells with his people. And so Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, but because of what Jesus accomplishes, it doesn't just give us access to the Holy of Holies, it gives us residence there. That's the arc of the story that the Bible is telling. That's what's moving towards. And so here with Solomon, we take another step forward. We have a temple that's more significantly glorious a little bit larger, but proportionately the same, but eventually it will be the whole of God's creation. In fact, that's the promise that God makes back in the book of Exodus. He says that he will not stop what he's doing until his glory covers the world like the sea covers the ocean, until it's everywhere, okay? So, with that being said, let's look at chapter 8. Then Solomon... "...assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the Father's house of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion, a smaller segment of Jerusalem. Verse 2, "...and the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month." Now, that's also significant, because that particular feast is the feast we know as tabernacles, okay? Okay. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was set up as a remembrance of God's provision for Israel during the wilderness wandering, during the 40 years that they moved around the wilderness. And so what they would do is that they would, they would set up booths, uh, small tents made of sticks and uh, palm leaf coverings, uh, so that they could sleep outside and see the stars and remember what it was like not to have a home, okay? And so it's a significantly good time to do this for a couple of reasons. One, it is one of the three festivals that all the men over the age of 13, all the adult Jewish males, were required by law to come to Jerusalem and attend. Okay? So he sets up the dedication when all Israel is going to be there. But it's also significant because Tabernacles is about God's faithfulness to provide a home for his people. But that was only part of what God was doing. He was also going to be the God who dwells in the midst of Israel. And so it's significant here that at the fulfillment of that, it's in the midst of this celebration looking back at the promises of God. And so here, uh, verse 3, all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark and they brought the ark of the Lord to the tent of meeting and the holy vessels that were there in the tent and the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And so notice there's a little bit of a reverberation there. If you remember what the ark looks like, the lid of the ark also has two kneeling cherubim. And so now their wings are over the mercy seat, and they're being covered by greater, larger cherubim and their wings. So the focal point is this one spot, the spot where the blood goes on the Day of Atonement. Okay? Um, probably a personification of the throne of God. It's the mercy seat because it's the place where God Himself sits. Okay. Um, and so here in verse eight, the poles were so long that the end of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. And so in some ways, the poles extend the ones that they carry the ark with out of the holy place and can be seen if you're in the uh, in the sanctuary itself, but not from outside the building. Uh, and then notice what it says here, uh, and they are there to this day, this repeated refrain that we find all the time of the author saying, go see for yourself, okay? Now, why is that significant here to his audience? It seems like a weird thing to say. Why do we care about poles? Because your average Israelite is never going to see the ark, but they can see the poles, And they can reflect on this day as it's recorded in their history and remember they see the poles because that's where the ark is okay verse 9 there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that moses put in there at horeb When the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now that's actually a little interesting because last time we encountered the contents of the Ark, it included not just that, but the rod of Aaron that had budded and validated him and his family as high priest, as well as a jar full of the manna that God had provided. But remember, at a significant point in Israel's history, the Ark was captured by the Philistines and taken on its role. Uh, and then was basically neglected for a couple of generations until David brings it to Jerusalem. But at this point, when it's installed, all that's in it is the two tablets of stones from the covenant at Mount Sinai. Verse 10, when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And so notice what happens here is just like what happened with the tabernacle on its day of dedication, it's all set up, the priests begin their ministration, the sacrifices are being made, and as soon as they come out of the holy of holies, uh, the temple begins just like the tabernacle did to fill with the glory of God personified in smoke. And it's so thick, they can't go back into it, okay, okay? This is the same thing that we see happens with the tabernacle. Now, another interesting thing we see on the arc of the storyline that the Bible tells is when Israel, through their unbelief and idolatry and rebellion, is removed from Israel, this temple is destroyed. Okay? It's ransacked. In fact, all of the beautiful things we see that are built here are all taken Uh, by the king of Babylon and put in his own personal store. Remember, that gets him in trouble when he decides to use these cups for a party he's having with his friends, right? Um, When Nehemiah gets the ability to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, they build a temple that is significantly less unimpressive to this, to the degree that it tells us when the men who had lived through the entire 70-year period who saw the temple as kids saw the new one, they wept, okay? However... Eventually, that temple gets remodeled by the guy we know as King Herod, the same one who tries, uh, tries to put uh, the babies in, in, uh, uh, excuse me, in Bethlehem to death, that King Herod, uh, and is very impressive by the days of Jesus. Remember, his deci- disciples are enamored by it and say, man, can you believe what the temple looks like? And that's when he says, this temple is going to be destroyed as well, okay? What I want to point out to you is that the pattern in that temple, the one built under Nehemiah, is broken. When that temple is dedicated, it's not filled with smoke. The glory of the Lord does not descend upon it. It doesn't happen. Okay? But that doesn't mean that God's glory never comes to dwell in that temple. It happens when Jesus shows up and walks into that temple okay, in the Gospel of John. Okay? He comes and he's present, and that's when he gives the prophecy about his own body being the temple. And if you destroy this temple in three days, it will be raised again. We don't have time to pursue it tonight, but it's really interesting to read the book of Malachi in that context, okay? Malachi being one of the last prophets of the Old Testament to write, and he looks forward to God coming to his temple, okay? And so it's all there and present and tied together. We're further down the timeline here. We're at a different place in the trajectory, but thematically, it's the same, okay? Now, uh... Hold on, I'm watching the clock because it's saying more than one thing, and I'm trying to decide which one's the time. Good. Okay, we've got time. Um, All right, so God comes graciously uh, present in this temple, in this cloud of smoke. And then verse 12, Then Solomon said, The Lord had said that he would dwell in thick darkness, I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood still. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father saying, since the day that I brought my people out of Israel, of of Israel, out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Notice that emphasis again, build a house for the name of the Lord. Okay, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I've risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. Okay, and so God's faithfulness in fulfilling promises is woven all through this chapter. Verse 21, and there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now we get the significance of God fulfilling all those promises because God has made a covenant with Israel. He's committed themselves to Israel and so he points to the ark and he says, all that God has promised he has done, all that the covenant that God promises will be accomplished. Verse 22, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled... Fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you've spoken to your servant David, my father. So notice here Solomon sees God's faithfulness. Uh, as incentive to call for God to continue to fulfill his promises, including the one he made to David that his sons would reign on his throne as long as they obeyed him. Then he makes this clarification, verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. And so he says, I know that this house isn't where you will live. I know that it couldn't contain you. I know that you're more uh, than this. And he says, but hear my prayer today, verse 29, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, my place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer of your servant offered, your Listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place, and listen in heaven, uh, your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. So notice here, where is God's real dwelling place? It's in heaven, but he says, keep your eyes and your ears upon this place, and when we pray from here, and when we face here, and we pray towards here, hear and honor our prayers. He then goes on and sets up the different situations in which he wants God to hear the prayers of Israel. The first one, verse 31, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. What he's referring to here is a practice that was set up that involved the tabernacle as well. That when there were cases uh, of testimony against another person without any other witnesses, just the victim claiming that they'd been victimized by another Israelite, they would come here before the tabernacle and they would give their testimony before the Lord. And probably through the Urim and the Thummim, this way that Israel would discern God's will, God would declare the innocent, innocent, and the guilty, guilty, okay? Now, this is especially interesting because, remember, this is wise Solomon, who's already solved an unsolvable case, where two women uh, both said that the dead baby is hers and the living baby is mine, and although there was no other evidence, and although there was no, um, no other witnesses, he comes to the right conclusion through his wisdom, but he knows here that's not enough. He knows that for justice to truly be done, they need God who is the discerner of hearts. And so he asks that that prayer would be answered. Then verse 35, when your people of Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. And so he looks forward here to them being defeated and even carried away. And he says, hear their prayers from there. hear their repentance, forgive them and bring them back. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them by the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given your people as an inheritance. Now notice here, he adds a third one here. All three of these have something in common. The first is when they're defeated by their enemies. The second is uh, when there's no rain. And then finally, when there is famine, verse 37. If there's famine in the land, if there is a pestilence or a blight or mildew or locusts or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at the gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hand towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act to render to each whose heart you know according to all your ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to their fathers." So all three of these settings here take us back to the closing chapters of Deuteronomy. Take us back to the curses that would come on Israel if they did not obey the land, all of which, or obey obey the Lord, excuse me, all of which were to operate as warning signs, okay? And uh, you see this playing out in the book of Joel, for example, specifically dealing with locusts. And so Joel says, you've experienced this terrible season of locusts, followed by another season and another season. And he says, but even now, if you repent, he says the worst is to come, but if you repent, God will hear your prayer and will forgive, okay? Solomon recognizes and prays that God would do the same thing here. The second thing I wanted to point out to you is uh, specifically there in verse 38, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, okay? When it refers there to the prayers of a single person for the judgments coming on a nation, that's what we call intercession, right? And here Solomon recognizes that God can hear the uh, the prayer for mercy from a single person. Ezekiel makes the same point. Unfortunately, he makes it in a pretty negative context, Ezekiel speaks and he says, speaking for God, I searched the land looking for a single intercessor to stand in the gap, but I found none, so my judgment will come. It's worth remembering that although we don't share the same covenant that God made with Israel, we are part of a nation. And in being part of that nation, its fate and our fate are intertwined. And God calls us to pray uh, for those in authority, to pray for our nation, to pray that God uh, would forgive us of our sins and be merciful to us. Um, And that is part of his character, as we see here. Uh, Notice this one in verse 41. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake... For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven in your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you to, in order that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house I have have built has been called by your name. And so notice there's a universal emphasis here. This is not just the God of Israel. This is not just a worship place for the people of Israel. Here Solomon envisions, because of God's blessing and because of the goodness of God's hand, foreigners flocking to come and see the house of Israel's God to pray their prayers there. That's why Jesus is so offended when he walks into the temple of Herod and finds what was known as the court of the Gentiles because it was the only court in Herod's temple where non-Jewish people were allowed full of people like a marketplace selling the sacrifices that the people needed to offer. And so here is a place that Jesus says was a house that would be a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of thieves, right? The other thing I want you to notice here is even here in the Old Testament, there's a looking beyond the people of Israel, and that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. When God calls Abraham, he says, I will bless you and your descendants, and then he says, I will make you a blessing. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, okay? And so we have this very clear interim period where what God is doing is working primarily in the descendants of Abraham, but towards what? a universal savior, okay? And so Jesus is born unto the Jews, he's born of the Jews, and the Jews, think of all, all of the apostles, all Jesus' disciples, who begin to carry that message out to all the nations. But even in Israel's history, if they were to keep the covenant, if they were to be blessed, instead of it being, and I get these confused, uh, instead of it being centripetal right? Attraction, drawing all in. Now we as Christians are called to be centrifugal, moving out away from the center, carrying this message of gospel. But the universality is a whole Bible thing, not just a New Testament thing. Um, And so verse 44, if your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord towards the city that you've chosen and the house that I've built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them up to the enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart to the land which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. Now, this one is especially significant, okay? Because remember, we're finding this in chapter 8 of Kings, but we have the rest of the story. And by the time we get to the end of Kings, what we know is 2 Kings, by the time we get to the end of it, this will be the exact circumstances, okay? Israel will, because of their sins, be removed from the land, taken to Babylon. And here, as they read their scriptures, they find already Solomon's prayer and God's, desire to bring them back to the land if they would only seek him again, uh, which Daniel knows and begins to pray out of Jeremiah, which Nehemiah and Ezra accomplish, bringing them back into the land. Verse 48, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you towards their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you've chosen and the house that I've built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who sinned against you and all the transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage as you declared through Moses your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. And so he prays this prayer, and once again, the gist of it very simply is, uh, let this be a place when we turn here and pray here, that our prayers will be heard. And what's the primary prayer throughout this entire section? The need for forgiveness. Okay. The need uh, for God to forgive and to restore verse 54, now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar. Interestingly enough, when he started the prayer, he was standing with his hands raised, and here, at some point through the prayer, he falls to his knees, okay? And so he gets up, from the altar where he had knelt with his hands outstretched towards heaven, verse 55. And he stood and he blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying. And so the first thing he does is he prays to God and now he speaks to the people and he speaks over them a blessing. And here it is, verse 56. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all this good promise which he spoke by Moses, his servant. There, the language perfectly echoes the statement of the author of the book of Joshua. When Joshua has gone and conquered over the enemies and they're about to divvy the land, and it says, Not one of the promises God had made is left unfulfilled. Verse 57 The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers may not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and statutes and his rules which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine with which I've pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night and may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, that all peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Again there, why does he pray that God would maintain Israel? and stir their hearts and keep them obedient and all these things so that the whole world would know God's name. Verse 61, Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Now, remember here, the peace offering or the fellowship offering, unlike the burnt offering, which would be wholly consumed on the altar, this one, a portion is given to the Lord and a portion is given to the priest and the rest is given back to the offerer and it becomes a feast for the offerer and all of his friends and families. And so basically here, the fellowship offering uh, is, is a personification of the fact that God truly is present among his people. It's like inviting God to a barbecue. Um, that's the idea here. And so there's a huge feast and celebration that takes place here. Um, Verse 64, the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the fat pieces, the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces and the peace offering. In other words, there's so much sacrificing going on continuously, they have to set up an interim sacrificial system to take care of it so that they can feed all of the people. And so he has the Levites sanctify a specific area uh, to do so. Verse 65, so Solomon held the feast at that time and all Israel with him as a great assembly from Lemo Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord of God, uh, seven days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away And they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. Now, like I said, really here we hit the high point of Israel's history. There's peace, there's prosperity, there's a temple, and it's full of God's presence. Okay, they're united, the covenant is renewed, and they're moving forward. It will not stay there, but even if it had, we need to recognize that God's work is not yet done. As I mentioned earlier, all the way back in Exodus, we see God looking beyond just having his name in Jerusalem, but having his name be worldwide, moving beyond this okay? That's why, although Solomon is the son of David and brings about this pinnacle in Israel's history, there's a greater son of David who brings about the greater reality uh, that God is going to do that doesn't just settle with one people group uh, and one place, but uh, with people from all nations and tribes and tongues gathered around the throne room in heaven because of the work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So, let's go ahead and stop there tonight. I'll pray and dismiss us. Father, we live in a different dispensation, Lord. This church building is not a temple. It's not the place where you dwell. But because of the miraculous work of Jesus, where he walked into the heavenly temple and by his own blood made atonement for sins, Because of that work, God, you have sent your spirit and made us your temple. And so we can hold on to the promise that Jesus made, that he is always with us, even to the end of the age, Lord. And we can take to heart the fact, Lord, that we are sanctified and set apart, and we are to be the place where people can come to know the name of the living God, I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that our body is a temple and it is not our own, for we were bought with a price. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that collectively, we as the church are the temple of the living God. And I pray, Lord, that we would live out that destiny as Paul calls us to and prays for us to in Ephesians when he says that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. In the same way, Lord, that your presence filled the temple, I pray that your spirit would fill your people tonight to overflowing. We ask that you would do this good work, and we thank you that it is built both in your plan and in your character. And We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.